Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation. I've entitled this The Great White Throne Judgment, and we have one more section that we need to cover next week, which is eternity, looking into the New Jerusalem. This morning, we're looking at those events between the end of the millennium. We've been following the rapture, the tribulation, last week the millennium. Uh, But there is a segment of time after the millennium, before the new heavens and the new earth that I want to deal with this morning. And one of them is, of course, the great white throne judgment and the sealing of Lucifer for a thousand years. So let's read. I made a mistake. I should have had Paul read all the way through verse 15. So let's pick it up, Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books, plural, were opened. And another book was opened, which is called the Book of Life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire." We're going to be coming back and doing all of uh, Revelation 20. But we started Jeremiah, and I want you to turn back to chapter 1 of Jeremiah. A little background on this man. Um, He's different from the other prophets that really don't talk a lot about themselves. It's not so with Jeremiah. Actually, a lot of it is uh, autobiographical because it's so much about his personal experience. He was born a priest. He was chosen to be a prophet even before he was born. That's Jeremiah 1 verse 5. He was called to this prophetic office while he was still a young man, late teens, maybe as old as 20. Um, He was commissioned by God to be a prophet. He began his ministry during the reign of King Josiah and uh, Josiah was probably the last good king uh, in Judah before it fell to the Babylonians. And they were friends. Um, We find that uh, Jeremiah was at Josiah's funeral. Jeremiah was forbidden to marry because of the terrible times that he lived in. He never made one convert, his whole ministry. Not one convert listened to him. He was rejected by his people. He was hated, beaten, put in stocks, in prison, and then charged for being a traitor. Because all the other prophets were saying pleasant, good things, basically telling people what they wanted to hear, but not so with um, Jeremiah's message. His message broke his own heart. That's why they call him the weeping prophet. He wanted to resign, didn't like the job, but God wouldn't let him. And he lived long enough to see his prophecies fulfilled. He saw the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity. He was permitted to remain in the land by the captain of the Babylonian forces. Uh, When the remnant wanted to flee to Egypt, Jeremiah told them not to. So he was forced to go with the remnant to Egypt. 
And there he died. Tradition tells us he was actually stoned by his own people. Now, with that, I want to go back and read Jeremiah 1, the other text this morning, beginning with verse 17. He's already received his commission. It's a tough gig, to say the least. And in verse 17, he says, Therefore, the Lord is speaking to him. He's reassuring Jeremiah because his task is going to be so hard. Nothing good to say except judgment is imminent. And so the Lord speaks to him and he says, Therefore, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. I don't want you to be dismayed before their faces unless I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall against the land, against the king of Judah, against its princes, against its priests, against the people of the land, and they're going to fight against you. But they shall not prevail against you, because I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. This morning's message is not a happy, clappy message in any way, shape, or form. The fact of the matter is, America, and we're studying Jeremiah right now, parallel, even though we have you know, a couple thousand years plus between us, the similarities that Judah was going through and what's happening in, in the United States of America, uh, if anybody, uh, we see the moral decay, we have to admit that we are due for God's judgment. Good time for an Amen. And uh, we see the signs for the tribulation, which is God judging the entire world. Basically, the perfect storm is coming together. One world religion, one world government, and Mary just blew everybody's mind with the one world currency. That's out there. What blew my mind is the people who were endorsing it, the people who would know about such things, saying this is, this is what's on the fast track. And what she didn't tell you, that I was hoping she would, is some guy invested in this, I think he paid 28 bucks three years ago when, the, when he was in on, on the ground floor. And out of curiosity, he thought he'd check out to see um, uh, what it was up to. And uh, it was from $28, and I think I got it right, to $850,000. That's where that went. That was his $28 investment, and that's where it was going. I asked her why she didn't tell me about this three years ago. <laughs> that was my question. This morning, gang, like Jeremiah, I find no pleasure in giving this study. He, didn't, he did not want to do it. He wanted out. But he had to. And he said, Jeremiah, everybody's going to fight against you. They're not going to like your message one bit. There will be plenty of other false prophets out there that will tell you exactly what you want to hear. Uh, it's the same with me. And I think it's the same with anybody else that's not going to compromise with the whole counsel of God. So as we get into Jeremiah, it's going to be pretty much the same thing week after week. A judgment is imminent. There's no way you can get around it. And yet in the midst of all this, the Lord pours out his heart, calling them the apple of his eye, wishing they would come back, trying to woo them back, but they simply wouldn't. They were worse than the, the people that were driven out of the land. They had becoming that vile. And last Wednesday we talked about part of the study is they didn't learn the lesson of their sister Israel in the north when they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The Lord wanted them to learn the lesson so they wouldn't repeat it because now he's going to use not the Assyrians, they're off the chart, but 
Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon will be God's instrument of choice that will bring about uh, the final um, captivity of 70 years in Babylon. This is all the longer we're going to stay in Jeremiah. The rest of the, the study, we need to turn back now to the book of Revelation. And uh, I want to start right in the beginning with verse 1. We have chapter 19, we have the second coming of the Lord at the battle of Armageddon. The beast and the false prophet at this point have been thrown into the lake of fire, but not Lucifer. We pick up with him in the first three verses of Revelation 20. And it says in verse one, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. God bless you. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, or the abuso, and shut him up, set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Here is a creature that had the prominent position. He was called the anointed cherub that covers. Probably the highest ranking order of um, the angels in heaven. But because of his rebellion, he was cast down. And he's had free reign on on the planet. We we see this at a couple different places with with Job. And um, I'm going to take you to Zechariah in just a second and Peter. But um, here we have, um, uh, well, we were in men's prayer yesterday. We talked about this a little bit, how much of a target you are, especially if you're in Christian leadership. I'd like you to turn to uh, Zechariah, because that's where we started it yesterday in men's prayer. And um, I was struck in chapter 3 um, that Satan shows up in a scene just like he does in the book of Job. So if you're in Zechariah, Zechariah is right before Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. And in verse 1 he says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan was standing at the right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Same with Job. The sons of God came and presented themselves to the Lord, and Satan was with them. What have you been up to? Oh, just cruising back and forth to and fro over the earth. And the Lord starts bragging on Job. And um, he says, skin for skin. Um, Take away his health, his wealth. You'll see what he's really made of. And uh, when all that was done, all Job said was, naked I came, naked I go, blessed be the name of the Lord. And it didn't stumble him. But my point is, he was pointed out by the Lord himself. Now Peter was probably the spokesman for the disciples. And in Luke 22, the Lord said, Peter, Peter, indeed Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. And he has had rain, And he seems to target those that want to be effective 
in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, that's his only really threat that he has. So therefore, you become that target, so to speak. Um, Dr. Uh, Schaefer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, was once asked why God loosed Satan after he had him bound. And he replied, if you will tell me why God let him loose in the first place, I will tell you why God let him loose the second time. Apparently, Satan is released at the end of the millennium to reveal that the ideal conditions of the kingdom under the personal reign of Christ do not change the human heart. This reveals the enormity of the enmity of man against God. And scripture is clear about this, that our heart is desperately wicked. We'll quote this a couple times this morning. And is incurable. So man is totally depraved. The loosing of Satan at the end of the thousand years is going to prove this. All right, we've made it through verses one through three. He is going to be sealed, but then he's going to be released again. So now what you have is planet Earth, um, perfect environment, the curse removed, perfect leadership in the Lord Jesus Christ, and as a, sort of an executive to the th- throne for the Lord will be King David. And it brings us to verse 4, 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands, and they lived, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, now these would be those who died in their sins, they did not live again until the thousand years was finished. Uh, this is the first resurrection. Now, it says, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. Two things I want to look at. The first one is the first resurrection, and the second one is the second death. The Greek word for resurrection here is Anastasia, which means to stand up a bodily resurrection. It's rather difficult for a spirit to stand up, and those who spiritualize this section are at a loss to explain just how a spirit stands up. This is the same word used by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for the resurrection of Christ and believers. Now Jesus was, remember, the resurrection of the first fruits, and he was the first one resurrected, came back to life with a resurrected body. Now every Christian, and let's just start with the first one, Stephen, he was the one that was the first martyr. Every Christian who has died in Christ, since that time, is part of what we call the first resurrection. The first resurrection began with the resurrection of Jesus. Then it is followed by the resurrection throughout time until the rapture of his church, sometime more than 1,900 years later, but before the Great Tribulation. At the end of the Great Tribulation is the resurrection of the tribulation saints. Now, people that died, we we're reading this here in um, uh, Revelation 20. 
And it says, the souls of them that had been beheaded for their testimony in the word of God and whoever worships the first beast. So what is the first resurrection? Well, if you die today, you're part of the first resurrection. And then there's this promise where it says that you will not, um, over such, the second death has no power. And we have this terminology here, the second death. Well, what is it? Well, first thing I'd like to do, it occurs eight times uh, in the scriptures, and um, I'd like to, no, that does not the second death, that's the tree of life. I want you to turn back to Revelation chapter 2 and show you where, where it is referred to. Revelation 2, verse 11 This is the Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was known chronologically. If it had a chart of the church age here, I would put Ephesus the first hundred years, and the Book of Revelation was written about ninety-six A.D. And then, for the next um, three hundred years, we had uh, the church having to go underground from one hundred to 300 A.D. before Constantine got saved. To be a Christian, uh, you were martyred. That's why they have the catacombs in Rome. And so this was the suffering church, and the title that the Lord uses for them is interesting because every title that we have in Revelation seems to connect some way with that particular church. And such is the case with Smyrna, where he calls himself the first and the last, the one who was dead, but then came back to life. Well, he would have been identifying with them. And then down in verse 11, there's seven letters, seven churches, but there's also seven promises, different ones given to these seven churches. But to this church, in verse 11, he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. That what the Spirit says to the church, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So we have this term here, um, won't be hurt by the second death that it's used, but it's also used and um, it begs the question, well, what is a second death? And it tells us in verse 14 of Revelation 20. So now I'm going to have you flip back there. What is the second death? He says in verse 6, you won't be hurt by it, the church, but in Verse 14, when it says, death in Hades was cast into the lake of fire, then it says, this is the second death. So now we have the scriptures itself giving us interpretation. Um, There is a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. But usually, without exception, um, it explains itself. Sometimes in the same chapter. Sometimes you have to go back to Daniel. But um, that is a reference. That is not going to be part in any way, shape, or form of persons who are involved with the first resurrection. All right, seven through nine. Now we're at the end of the thousand years. When the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to put them together to battle whose numbers as the sand of the sea. Now, I don't want you to confuse 
Ezekiel 38, because that's not what's taking place here. And one of these is the title. And um, it shouldn't be confused with the, um, the curtain going up on the Middle East right now with Ezekiel 38. But um, he goes out and he's able to deceive. Uh, they went up, and it says, he gathered them whose numbers are sand of the sea. So there's a multitude of people that are going to be deceived by Lucifer. They went up from the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So they surround Jerusalem, and fire comes down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And I just want to look at seven and nine right now and just have you think this through. Um, We've already discussed last week uh, the purpose is accomplished by the sacrifices during the millennium. I think we use Zechariah for an example. Um, the end of Zechariah says that anybody who doesn't come up and keep the Feast of Tabernacle, namely Egypt, if Egypt doesn't come up, Egypt doesn't get any water. So there's free will that's involved. You can come and keep the feast, or if you don't, then the Lord ruling with that rod, he is applies the discipline and they don't get any rain and I'm sure they're they're thinking about it and they probably show up the following year. But apparently, millions of maturing children will view these sacrifices, hear the tender salvation plea of the priest, but will stubbornly harden their sinful hearts. The fact that earth's mighty king at Jerusalem once bled as a lowly lamb at Calvary will mean absolutely nothing to them. Outwardly, they will have conformed, but inwardly, they will um, despise. Finally, at the end of the millennium, the world will be offered for the first time in 10 centuries a choice and not an echo. Millions will make a foolish and fatal choice. Why does the Lord let this happen? Because where we're going next week, as we tie this all together, we're in that in-between slot right now, at the end of the millennium, but before heaven and eternity. These are the events that take place. This has to happen again. And the reason it has to happen is the Lord is not going to force you to become a Christian. Amen? Uh, of your own free will, you're going to hear the gospel, either acknowledge that it's true and repent, or you're going to harden your heart and uh, say, well, maybe some other day. Well, here's a whole, there's millions of people born uh, that you had to be saved to enter into millennium, but there's still going to be death. Um, And people will be able to sin. Longevity uh, will be restored. Finally, at the end of the millennium, the world will be offered that choice. That's why Lucifer is released one final time. And we talked a little bit about this last week, being a, a product of our environment. Oh, if I only had the perfect dad or perfect mom or didn't grow up in Cook County or whatever, I'd be a different person. And the fact of the matter is, um, Dwight Doval's going to have to be accountable for Dwight Doval and nobody else. And um, 
Somebody want to say amen to that? <laughs> Mom and dad were saved, but that doesn't mean that I get automatically written in on the ticket. You have to make that personal decision yourself. Um, Jeremiah 17, this proves that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who could not. Have you ever heard people say, oh, he's such a nice guy, he's got such a great heart? Everybody's heard that, right? Liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> There's none good, no, not one. Your heart is desperately wicked, and it seeks its own. And uh, that is manifested in this perfect environment with a perfect king. They still choose Lucifer. And, um, but that has to happen because the next thing on God's calendar is heaven and eternity. And if you don't want to be there, so be it. You have your free will. Finally, verse 10. I enjoy reading this verse. Satan, Lucifer's final fate. He's given me a lot of trouble over the years. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. Ezekiel comments on this and so does Isaiah. In Ezekiel, the prophet says, you defiled your sanctuaries, talking about Lucifer, by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Evidently, he was a Wall Street guy. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror, and you shall be no more forever. That's Ezekiel. In Isaiah 14, it says, You shall be brought down to Sheol, the lowest depths of the pit, And those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? It's a reference, I believe, to that thousand-year period of time where he's incarcerated. And there's actually going to be people that are going to say, you're the guy? This creature here is one for all the trouble that has, has been in our world? All right. This brings us to 11 through 15, the great white throne judgment itself. And um, this will be the last event uh, before we get to 21. And um, these are the verses, a new heaven and a new earth that we left off a couple weeks ago in Isaiah. So this is where we'll be next week, but let's finish off now. Then I saw the great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Now what does that tell you? How many people, ignorant of the scriptures, under a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, just don't want to carry on anymore, and they think, I'm just going to check out. I'll just check out and then it'll all be over with and I don't have to think about it. What they don't realize is death is just the beginning. And once you die, it is appointed unto man once to die and then what? And then the judgment. The rich man and Lazarus, the rich man, when Jesus told the parable 2,000 years ago, well, he's still there this morning and he's, he's not gonna be resurrected again for at least another 1,000 years. So after the 1,000 years, now... The rich man from the parable, well, he's going to be there. 
Um, interesting to me, only when he was in Hades is he conscious, totally aware, and he realizes that there's nothing he could do about his fate. It's sealed. But in his thinking, he thought, I have family still alive. So what was his prayer request to Abraham? Lord, would you send Lazarus back? And would, if somebody rose from the dead, surely they'd believe, lest they would come to this place of torment. Gang, we have to have that kind of heart for our family, right? We need to have the foresight realizing that heaven is real and hell is real, and we don't want any of our loved ones having to go through those things. And you have to take Jeremiah's attitude. That's why I read those verses. You know what they're going to say? They're going to hate you. Oh, you goody two-shoes, you think you're better than I. I know you, you're no different than anybody else. But you got to tell them. And he said, but they don't like me. They've already, you know, marked me as one of those people. (laughs) One of them guys, those holy rollers. He says, well, it doesn't matter. I've called you. I don't care what kind of faces they give you or what kind of comments you get thrown your way. You have to tell them. But by the way, I'll be with you. And um, then your job is done. The Bible says once you've sown the seed, that's all, you're, that's all you have to do. You're not, you're not in the persuasion business. You're in the declaration business. And in doing that, God says, my word won't return void. Uh, they'll spend a lot of sleepless nights wondering if what you got is a real deal, but you got to do it. So the dead, and it, then it says the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is called the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things written in the books. Books, plural. We got two things going on here. And I need you to turn to Daniel chapter 7 for one of them. And let's talk about the books. Daniel 7. Daniel actually got a glimpse of this event. If you're in Daniel 7, we're going to read verses 9 through 14. And um, I found in studying this week that people have different thoughts on who the Ancient of Days is here. So let's pick it up in verse 9. And the verses before it, 7 and 8, are about the Antichrist. And then after, of course, the Antichrist is cast into the lake of fire, chronologically we go into the great white throne judgment. So in verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was like white as snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, his wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and it came forth from before him. A thousand thousand ministered to him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books, plural, were opened. And then Daniel says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Revelation tells us exactly the same thing, that the beast and the false prophet were cast alive into the lake of fire. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, 
So we have two characters here, one who is the Ancient of Days, and then one like the Son of Man coming to him, and they brought him near before him. And then verse 14, the one who looks like the Son of Man, he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which will never be destroyed. To me, this is clear, that the Ancient of Days is the Father himself. And the one who is now given the kingdom by the Ancient of Days is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But you'd be surprised how many commentaries I went through this week, and they have some great scriptures that tells us, no, the Lord is the one, Lord Jesus Christ will be the one sitting upon the throne opening the books. And let me give you their side of the argument. The judge on the throne is Christ himself. For the Father, <coughs> excuse me, a <coughs> little, bit, little bit of those uh, leftover. Uh, For the Father judges no man, but he has committed all judgment unto the Son, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Good argument. Another one, Acts 40, 42. God raised him up, Jesus, the third day, and showed him openly. And he commanded us to preach unto the people, <clears throat> and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. That's Acts 40. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at the appearing of his kingdom. That's 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. So which is it? The answer is, I don't know. One of the guys in men's prayer yesterday uh, said in there, uh, Zachariah was asked a question, and he said, I don't know. And he says, I like that. When you can say from time to time, I don't know. And, uh, but I know this, that as soon as we get home, we'll know. And once we see it unfolding, it'll become clear. Good place for an amen. You know, we don't know it all. But we do know this. Let's go back to Revelation 20. We do know that the books are plural. What are the books? Well, if, if you're unsaved, these are the books of the deeds of an unsaved person. If the technology exists today that you can be observed at any time, any place because of this RFID chip, which is now gone exponentially into this money system, if mankind can do that, you don't think the creator of the universe is aware and has written down in his books every deed, every thought, Everything that you ever did in this life is down and recorded. Um, there can be no denial. You won't be able to stand before this great white throne and go, uh-uh, not true. You know, and he'll just bring it up. It's all been written down here. April 6, 1964, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This, somebody was witnessing to you about Jesus, and you didn't want to hear it. You told him to go away. Jesus freak, leave me alone. Stuff like that. Or the sins that, that um, are hidden that you think nobody knows about and you're unsaved. And um, except for the grace of God, there go we. Best place in the Bible study for an amen. 
I like to tell people I'm witnessing to them, I said, look, you're probably a nicer guy than I am. And that usually, you know, catches them off guard just a little bit. I said, no, I mean it. You probably are a nicer guy than I am. The only difference between me and you is my sins are forgiven and you're still in yours. That is the only difference. And except for the grace of God, we are who we are. Another good place for it, amen. It's by God's grace, his work, we all know who we are. And um, that should create this gratefulness for what we remembered in communion this morning. The other book recorded here is the book of life. This is the one that occurs eight times in the scriptures. I just want to show you where it's one of the promises to the church in Revelation 3. So let's go back there. Revelation 3, verse 5. This would be to the church of Sardis. Again, this is one of the promises now. To this church, he says, he who overcomes will be clothed in a white garment, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. You know that Jesus said, if you will confess me before men, then someday I'm going to confess you before my Father in heaven. Don't ever be ashamed in the name of Jesus, because every time you say it, um, the Lord is marking that down. He said, you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. But then he says, I won't blot your name out of the book of life. Again, two possibilities here. First of all, the implication to me is um, that it can be, or why even say it? That would be my first question. Why even say it if it if it's, if it's uh, nothing that could happen. The other thought is every human being that was ever born was recorded in the book of life, and your name stays in there when you, be, you become saved and the others are blotted out. I will not be dogmatic on either one. Um, all right, let's go back and finish this up this morning. Revelation 20, verse 15. Getting back to the book of life, where we see the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead. And they were judged according to the works. Then death and Hades was cast into the lake of fire. Now this is different. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Um, Jesus said the same in Matthew 24 about this being a place, Gehenna, outer darkness, where you will be forever by yourself. It's not a place where you get a party with Janis Joplin and all your rock and roll old buddies, like a lot of people say, yeah, I can't wait to get to hell. We're just going to have one rock and roll party for all eternity. No, you're not. You're going to be all by yourself. And the last thing that you're going to have in your consciousness is the glory of the Father sitting upon the throne. And um, that's going to be a part of your psyche throughout all eternity with absolutely no hope of ever, ever coming out of that place. You are forever sealed if your name is not put in the, the book. The final God's warning as we close the Bible, we'll be here next week. Go to Revelation uh, 22, 
and look at, uh, I'd like to pick it up with verse 18 as we close this morning. If ever there was a time, gang, where we stick to the book, all of it, because the Bible ends with a warning. In verse 18, he says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anybody adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. If anybody takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his part of the book of life. I think of red-letter Christians. They just want the the words that Jesus said. That's their Bible. And uh, Paul was too negative. He spoke out against homosexuality and and those sort of things. So we can't go there. We're just red-letter Christians. Bob Meyer's going to come up one of these days. I've asked him to come up. And um, he's a syndicated writer, and he wrote an excellent article. So we'll be sneaking him up, and he's going to give us um, uh, some very thought-provoking insights in just what a red-letter Christian is. And then we read, so you don't mess with the book, number one, and um, you don't add to it, and you don't take away from it. Um, And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his part from the book of life from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So here we have a reference. This is the last reference of the eight of the book of life, and it happens to be in the last couple verses of the Bible. And he, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. These are the events that we've gone through this morning that exist between the end of the thousand-year kingdom age and before we begin next week with verse 1 when there's a new heaven and a new earth. And um, before we can enter eternity with Jesus forever. So in closing, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's stand we'll close in prayer this morning. Lord, as we make our way through the Bible, I think it's timely that we're in the book of Jeremiah right now. You were straight up with him, Lord. You said, the message I'm going to give you, the people aren't going to like it one bit. But I'm going to make you like iron. And um, I'm going to make it so you're not afraid of what they're going to think about you. I want you to give the words that I give to you. And just know this, Jeremiah. I'm with you. And if you'll confess me before men, I'll take care of you and I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.